Good morning, Sean. So good morning. We're in the book of Hebrews, and the theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Now, before we go any deeper into the book of Hebrews, Eric and Carolyn showed up uh, first time last week, and when I saw Eric come into the Sunday school class, I, remind, I was reminded of the very first time that I went to the men's Bible study at Perkins Pancake House on Friday mornings at 7 a.m. Tom Martin, who has been here and visited, invited me, and he said, if you come, I'll buy your breakfast. Inferred the first time, but that's fine. So I'll make that same offer to everybody else in here. If you come to that Bible study, I'll buy you breakfast that first time. So, Jesus is better. He's better than all those things listed, and we're on chapter 3. Jesus is better than Moses. Now, there you have Hebrews 3.3. 3. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Now, keep in mind the audience here are the Hebrew believers and how they held Moses in highest esteem. Now, what does that saying mean? You can't see the forest for the trees. Anybody? You get the little picture rather than the big picture. It'd be like me having my face in Sean's shirt, and I can't see anybody else for seeing Sean's shirt, right? So here's Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you, keyword, refuse to come. Man is without excuse. So then Paul picked up on that theme of Jesus, and he said, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the Hebrews, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong, and he gives a whole series of things that belong to the Israelites. Keep in mind the theme that we're building up here is how the people held Moses, and yet Christ is better, worthy of greater honor, than Moses. Can you imagine if you were one of those 200 plus million Jews following the, the pillar of cloud by, not, by day and the fire by night, and the cloud gave them shade out there in the desert, and the fire, if, if I was the uh, Midianites or the Amorites, and I'm seeing this wall of fire, there's no way I'm going to mess with those people. So they, so they, they saw the glory. They had the covenants, the covenant given into Adam, to given to Noah, given to Abraham, and built up and given to Moses as well. And if I backtrack, you'll see that Jesus provides a better covenant. They had the giving of the law, which was a behavioral thing, a dietary thing, and a worship thing that they followed for 1,500 years until Christ came on board. And except for the sacrifices, A.D. 70, the temple and the altar were ruined. For another 2,000 years, there are still people that are called observant Jews following the law. They were given certain promises. They were given the promise of a Messiah. They were given a promise to Abraham 
as many children as the, the, the sands of the sea. They're given a promise of real estate from the Nile to the, to the Euphrates. They were given the promise of Jesus. Now, speaking of the, the patriarchs, who got all the press? Again, I'm building up to Moses. So there are the number of times in Scripture those patriarchs appeared in the Bible. Adds up to a whole lot. Well, Moses by himself came up to 888, and Jesus, 1273. So it's no wonder when Jesus was with Nicodemus, John chapter 3 refers to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel, not a teacher of Israel. He was the cream de la cream. And so when Jesus talked about, as, uh, just as, no, as Moses held up the serpent in the wilderness, he didn't have to describe the plague and the people dying. And they have Nicodemus knew that story. Those people grew for those 1,500 years. They didn't have Johnny Appleseed and Jack and the Beanstalk. They had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the brothers, Joseph, Moses. And so they knew those stories. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians. He said, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them, lest the light of the glorious gospel, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. I use that NIV verse because of the word veil, and we're going to see that word veil come up several times. So Moses, he got to see the glory of God. In John's gospel, the Bible said, no man has seen God and lived. And Moses asked to see God, and God said, you can't see face to face. He said, but just let me walk by, and you can see my hindsight. Well, that continued on, because every time Moses, there was no temple, there was the tabernacle. When Moses would go inside the tent of meeting, the, the holy place, he would commune with God. And when he came out, and you can see the words up there, you can read faster than I can talk. And when he came out, the people couldn't look at him for the glory that was shining on his face. So he had to wear a veil. You know, we got these COVID things, and some people used to wear masks, and some people would wear shields, and the shields were clear. Well, imagine Moses with a pitch black shield, because the people couldn't see. They couldn't see what was going on. Well, that wasn't the only veil. What happened when Jesus died? The veil rent in two from top to bottom, not bottom to top, top to bottom. Well, here we have again in Hebrews a new and living way. We're going to talk in chapter 10 about Jesus going into the holy holies, not like a high priest who had to confess for his own sins first because he had no sin. But he went in, consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. When that soldier's spear went into the side of Jesus and the soldier said, truly, this was the Son of God, that was the splitting of the veil, the flesh. The curtain, which was a symbol of his flesh, was also split. Because, you see, Moses knew God's ways, but the people only knew of God's deeds. The people saw the dividing of the Red Sea. 
and we'll see some other examples here. Can you imagine when they started painting the lintels and the doorposts, and the little kid comes up to dad and says, Dad, did mom say you should paint the house? What are you, what are you using that stuff for? They knew the deeds, but Moses knew his ways. Look at Hebrews 3.10, it's the top one of those bullets. Their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. What did Jesus tell Thomas in John chapter 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, they're in that desert for 40 years, and they complained, and they said, we want to go back to the leeks and the garlic and the onions and the fish, and they were hot. Anybody ever been in the desert for a while? It's, it's hot, isn't it? And if you had water, it doesn't matter because you're constantly uh, putting off evaporation. That's God's way of having us to cool down. He slowed that down a little bit with the cloud, right? But they were thirsty, and they mumbled, they mumbled to Moses. And what did Moses do for them? You have to see it in the picture. What did he do? He struck the rock. 40 years worth of water, them watering, they, they ran out of water again. What did, Jesus, what did God tell Moses to do? To, to speak to the rock. What did he do instead? He struck the rock and he was forfeited from going into the promised land. But here you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. They held Moses in highest esteem, but Jesus is better than Moses. He rained down on them manna to eat. Can you imagine 40 years for six days every day, just as faithful as the sun coming up, they would go outside and they would see the, the food of angels, the manna, which means what is this stuff? On the sixth day, they would gather twice as much because they weren't going to gather any on the Sabbath. If they gathered too little on any given day, they were filled with what they gathered. And if they gathered too much, what was left of the following morning was spoiled. You can understand what the apostles were thinking when Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. But I want you to know my refrigerator is fully stocked, praise God. So when I pray, give us this day our daily bread, I'm not praying for my refrigerator or my pantry. What am I praying for? An everyday meal? How about a spiritual meal? A spiritual meal, sure. Jesus starved for 40 days and 40 nights. And you know what river rock is? The round gravel, right? That's what Israel looks like in the desert. Is it, is it like the Sahara where there are dunes and ground and everything like that? And Satan said, if you be the son of God, turn these stones into bread. What was Jesus' response? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He fed the Israelites 40 days, I'm mean, sorry, they fed the Israelites for 40 years. 40, by the way, is the number of testing, right? It rained 40 days and 40 nights. 
there were 40 years in the desert. Jesus starved for 40 days. But what did Jesus say when he fed the 5,000? He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Of course, he continued on, and he said, if you do not eat my bread and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And the response was, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And many people left because they weren't thinking of the spiritual drink from the last slide we had. They were thinking of the physical. They wanted to make Jesus the king, not the king of their hearts, but the king of their bellies. Jesus is better than Moses because he wasn't just a veil. The veil was his flesh. And he's our rock. He's our fortress. He's the bread of life. You know, it's interesting when you look at the sequence of events there. God humbled the Israelites before he fed them. And a lot of times God's got to humble me too. The book of Proverbs tells us that pride cometh before destruction. Your clothes did not wear out. Now, I don't have this problem today because all my kids are grown and gone. But when they were younger, we were raising, it seemed like I was always buying shoes. Seems like their, knee, their knees were always blown out. My mother would say, just scrape your, your, your knees because they'll grow back, right? <laughs> she would save old dungarees and sew the new jean, the old jean inside the new jean. There wasn't stitch which she had to do it the old-fashioned way. Forty years, their clothes never wore out. And it's not like the men 20 and older, they dropped dead. They said, oh, let's save those shoes. They had their garb, and the garb never wore out. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and springs gush out into the valleys and the hills. And there's some spirituals that talk about the promised land as an allegory of heaven. It's not an allegory of heaven. When they crossed over that river, yeah, they got they took care of, God took care of Jericho for them, but there were giants. And you count them up, there were 35 city-states that they had to defeat. When I go to heaven, I'm not looking for another fight. And there, there will be giants in heaven. Paul's a giant, if you will. He's not going to be bigger than physically, but he's a giant. There'll be giants in heaven, but they won't be against me. There'll be nothing to fight. We're going to see a verse right here, right now. Isaiah, this is, way, this is hundreds of years after they reached the promised land, and they're still talking about the future. No longer will they call you deserted or your name or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hebzibah. Hebzibah, we're not talking about South Coatesville, and Beulah, we're not talking about Russellville. We're talking about a promised land. The Nottingham Four used to sing a song, Beulah land, how I long for you, and someday on thee I'll stand. And my home will be eternal. Beulah land, sweet Beulah. Hepzibah means my delight is in her. And Beulah means married. The allegory in the Old Testament is God 
married to Israel. And every time Israel went off into adultery, the parallel words, uh, into idolatry, the parallel was adultery. You read the book of Hosea, and Hosea was told, go marry this prostitute named Gomer. And Gomer would go out, and he would bring her back, and go out and bring her back, and buy her back. God kept pulling Israel back. And it's also a picture of me and Jesus pulling me back. I was dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who was rich in mercy, saved me. And I'm looking forward to a Beulah land. Not a land of giants and fights, but a place of rest. That's going to be chapter 4. We'll get to that next week, Lord willing. What did I do? Therefore, brothers and sisters, we're in Hebrews 3, even though we went all over Exodus and Numbers. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling. He's writing to Hebrew Jews. So for those that walked in today for a visiting class, there's an immediate audience and there's a, a broader audience. The immediate audience of the book of Hebrews were Hebrews by descent, but believers by faith. You expand that, and you have tools that those people can use to talk to other people. For example, I use that phrase, you can't see the forest for the trees. Well, I didn't make that up. I used somebody else's thought. So these Hebrews, they get this stuff, they're steeped in Moses and the patriarchs and the stories and everything else. They can take and use this for their neighbors and say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about how this Messiah satisfies everything we've studied all our lives. And then we have an audience today. As far as I know, I don't have any Jewish in me. All, by the way, all four of my grandparents came from the same village in what's now the Slovak Republic. So there you have it. But I can use the book of Hebrews to teach other believers. I can use the book of Hebrews to talk to lost people, if anybody in here is lost today. There's an immediate audience, and there's an expanded audience. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Well, do I have to close my eyes when I pray? No, one of my favorite places to pray is behind the steering wheel. And if I close my eyes, I'd be seeing Jesus sooner rather than later. So fixing our eyes on Jesus means having our mind set on Christ. We, there used to be a fad where they wore these bracelets, WWJD. What would Jesus do? Fixing your eyes on Jesus. The pioneer, King uh, James, is the captain of our faith. What's a captain? It's the one who leads the soldiers into battle. Not the guy standing back here and say, you do this, that, and the other thing. He's our captain. He's our pioneer. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now, he was not a masochist. He did not enjoy getting those stripes on his back and the nails through his hands and feet. 
he dreaded it so bad, so badly, he said to his father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, but not my will, but thy will. His joy was beyond the cross. His joy was seeing you and me coming to him. His joy was to see you and me not coming him just now in this life, but entering into the heavenlies. The Bible says, blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. Scorning his sh its shame. The Bible says, cursed is everyone who hung from a tree. And yet, with the joy looking forward, he wasn't worried about the shame. Romans, you know, you see pictures of Jesus on the cross, and he has a speedo on, or, you know, with a, you know a, a Hebrew version of a speedo. Romans crucified you naked. That would be a shame. Yet the Bible says, he's not ashamed to call me his brother, to call you his sister. The same God who created the universe with the span of his hand, the Bible measure of a span is nine inches from there to there, half a cubit. So if he could create the universe with nine inches, imagine how big Jesus is. And yet he can take a five-year-old and have that five-year-old be able to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, believing it with all of his heart. He can touch a huge crowd, think of Billy Graham, and he can bless a child in a tiny tots class, learning of the love of Jesus. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than we could ever imagine. And so we sing the song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. There's a Sunday school teacher, she's since dead and gone, she would sing a song, she'd say, what a day that will be when I shall see Jesus. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. What a day, glorious day that will be. The writer of Hebrews says to fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, I asked this question last week. What is the only attribute, as an autobiography, what is the only attribute that Jesus ever gave himself? It's a test. Seven days gone by. Do, 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 do. Meekness. Oh, I pushed something wrong again. Here we go. Take my yoke upon me. I'm using the King James because you're going to see the word humble up there. And then a little bit later on, the NIV will change humble to meek. And if you go to the Greek, it's the same word. So again, for folks that aren't in here usually, I like to do word studies on the King James because once it picks a, a translation, it sticks with it. So meek, meek, meek throughout the thing, okay? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Rest is next week. Now the man Moses was very meek, again, uh, NIV says humble, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. We're going to find that meekness was a common attribute, 
and faithfulness, we'll see that in a couple clicks, is another common attribute. And so Jesus was meek, and here's where the NIV comes back into the King James. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus was meek, I should say is meek. Moses was meek. And the exhortation to us is to be meek. If you want to use the word humble, have at it. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. And since I'm talking translations, I'll, I'll help out here. King James says, was faithful in his house. Well, that begs the question, who is his? Is it Moses' house? Moses had a tent. Was it God's house? Or was it a house at all? That word house can also be translated household or family. So Moses was faithful to the family, not just Amram and Jochebed and Miriam and, and Aaron, but the Jewish nation. He grew up thinking, ha, my name is Moses, which means deliverer. I'm going to be the deliverer. Well, that didn't work out so well on his 40th birthday when he killed an Egyptian. Remember I said 40 is the number of testing. He was being tested to see if he was going to be meek like it talks about when he was in his older years. So where did he spend the next 40 years? Jail? The backside of the desert, taking care of Jethro's sheep. Was he observing the, the, I won't say the law because the law wasn't given yet, but was he observing the covenant of Abraham? Circumcision? No. Because when he was going back to Egypt, Zipporah, his wife, said, you're a bloody man unto me, and he circumcised his sons when he was 80 years old. So 40 and 40 and another 40 in the desert. Would that those guys at Cabbage Barnea would come back and say, yeah, we can take those guys, because instead of 40 years in the desert, he would have been spending, you know, a couple days to hike into Israel and it'd be all over. But the book of Deuteronomy tells us in the fullness of his years, his strength had not abated or shrunk. Can you imagine? I had to tell my guys two weeks ago, I'm finally retired from moving furniture on stairs because my knees can't take it. It used to be, you four guys get on that end and I'll get on this end. My strength is abating. But Moses was 120 years old. It says his eyes were not dim, nor was his strength abated. The same hold true for Joshua and Caleb, but they didn't get to 120 years old when they got into the promised land. But Moses was faithful to his house. Several times the people sinned and God said, Moses, step aside, I'm going to wipe these people out. What did Moses say? Go ahead, I'm tired of listening to them. He prayed for those people. It was a picture of Christ. There's one mediator between man and God, the, God, the man Christ Jesus, but Jesus wasn't qualified to be the mediator yet because he hadn't died. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So both were meek, both were faithful. Moses was faithful up until he got onto the mountain. He could see the promised land. And he prayed to God, 
There's one example that said, God don't pr- uh, where God said, don't pray for this. God said, look, Moses, I told you. You're not going to do it. He was faithful unto death. Jesus was faithful unto death. And the rest of that verse is, even death on a cross. Both were meek. Both were faithful. And to coin a word, I'll say Jesus was faithfuler. I don't think that's a word. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. I'm going to pause here on fellow citizens. The book of Philippians tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. But I'm also an American citizen. Because I'm a citizen in heaven, does that eliminate my requirements, my mandates to be an American citizen? No. Does that mean I should be the bottom of the barrel American citizen? No. We should be model American citizens. Up until one point, Peter and John were preaching in the temple courts and they put them into prison. They took them out and they said, don't you preach that word. And Peter said, it's better to obey God rather than man. When this church has got to start doing some of the things that this country is going to, I'll speak for myself and hopefully you guys too. I'm going to get real good at prison ministry. Because God's word is eternal. Our citizenship is in heaven. And my citizenship here is the U.S. of A. Speaking of the U.S. of A, who took time out to watch Red Skelton? One. Thank you. Two. Three. I see that hand. Again, for the newbies, you Google YouTube Red Skelton Pledge of Allegiance. It's only four and a half minutes. And even though he's dead and gone, he'll explain the Pledge of Allegiance with the meaning the way I learned it. And I don't know if our kids are learning it or if the future kids are going to be learning it. Check it out and share it with your kids with God's people who also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Moses was a prophet with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. This is the household he's talking about and we're going to start spending some time expanding on that. Those people from the blood on the doorposts to crossing over the Jordan The Bible says when Joshua was the leader, the manna quit. That means there's no going back. The manna quit. When they crossed over, they had to depend on, I won't say spiritual food, I'll say normal, normal food. There was no going back. But in between that time, 600,000 men died. Because the 12, except for Joshua and Caleb, the 12 said, we couldn't take those guys. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. They brought back clusters of grapes that they had to put on poles for two men to carry. That doesn't mean the grapes were like this. That means the clusters of grapes were so big. 
When the Bible says flowing with milk and honey, that doesn't mean there's gallons of milk sitting there. What it says is that there was good grazing land and there was good flora for the bees to, to pollinate and make honey, land flowing with milk and honey. And it was a promised land that they could go to, but it wasn't the heavenly land. That, that parallel doesn't work. We're doing well on time, I'm shocked. In whom the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. It's interesting when you study the, the two epistles of, of the, to the Corinthians, the Bible talks about you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that verse shortly. And that word you, you know, the Southerners have figured it out. The word you in English could be both singular and plural. The Southerners have figured it out because they say y'all. The Northerners haven't caught on yet. So when the Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about individuals. But he also says you are the temple of God, and that word, is, that word you is y'all, it's plural. What it's saying is, each of us who have been saved were sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're not to quench him. We're not to grieve him. But then the Bible also says, we as a local assembly are a temple of God. That doesn't mean bunches of Holy Spirits. We're not going to go to pantheism here. But it, what it says is that we're joined together and work to come closer and closer. The book of, the, the, in the book of Exodus, when it talks about the tabernacle, it talks about those posts. If you haven't been to the Lancaster Historical Society, the Mennonite Society, whatever thing is called next to the Starbucks, to see that, you need to go there. Because it talks about those boards that are firmly fit together. Today we'd say tongue and groove. And those boards have, they're, they're cut with a, with a V on the bottom. And they're placed in sockets. If you stick those things in the ground for 40 years in the sand, if they're not in sockets, the tips of those boards would wear out. They're placed in sockets of brass. B wood is always a picture of humanity. Sockets are a picture of judgment. So here I am standing in judgment, but it talks about a capiter, a cap of silver. Silver is a picture of salvation. And then the boards that were took care of the Holy of Holies, they're coated in gold, which is a picture of the glory of God. So when Moses said, I'm sorry, when, when, when Paul said in the book of Romans chapter 4, and he said, you're Israelites and you were given God's God's glory. Every time they took that thing apart, you know, they had the four different cloths that came off the thing, and they had five rods that would hold the, hold the boards together, five, five rods. When Jesus came back, he gave the people apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and, and, and pastors, five. Evangelism continued on. The way that one rod was like this, and then there were two over here and two over there. That's how it all stuck together. Apostles and prophets, they're done. The Bible's complete. The book of Revelation talks about the, the cursed somebody that adds to the word. Evangelism is for all time, and pastors and teachers are down here. 
But every time they took that thing apart, sooner or later they came down to the gold. And they're picking up these boards and stacking them, and the Levites got to carry them. They got to see the glory of God every time the, te the, the, the temple, every time the tabernacle moved. So we're firmly fit together just like those boards, and we come together over time. Now, what does that mean? That means that over time, I can mention something that Pastor Vernon said years ago, and somebody would relate to that. I could talk about some catastrophe, like a Rebecca Hostetter, and people would relate to that. We're coming closer and closer together. At church, we have conversations that you don't have outside. Yeah, we talk about how the Sixers are doing. But it's only a few people you say, would you pray for me? There are some prayer requests that people, I haven't heard it here recently, so-and-so uh, has an unspoken request. Not close enough yet to share that prayer yet, but we're being drawn closer and closer together because of Jesus. I've used this example many, many times. This is me. This is somebody else. This is God. And as I'm moving closer to God and somebody else is moving closer to God, what is happening to the distance between me and somebody else? Come on. It's shrinking. It's shrinking. We're coming closer and closer over time. Boys, I can remember up, upstairs with your, with your little kids when you were down here doing your, your music practice or whatever it was. Now they're men. John, I'm Bernie's, Bernie's kids. I remember them in the White Highlander going to junior wrestling. And now they're parents. And one day, we're going to all be in glory. We're all going to be in Beulah land. There are tragedies that we have in church. Willie talks about losing a child. My Rebecca, my, my uh, Leah has had several miscarriages. I'm convinced that life begins at the moment of conception. And we'll be together, won't we, Willie? Yeah, we'll be together. He can't talk about it without breaking his own heart, and I guess I broke it for him again. I'm sorry, buddy. It's come to the point I know more dead people than live people. We're going to be together. And it's interesting, you know, we talk about things where Jesus is going to tell us these stories, and I'm going to ask Noah what he was thinking about when he was putting the, that, that board together. The Bible says we'll know him even as we are known. I don't know if there's going to be stories in heaven. I hate to break your bubble. I don't know. But it's going to be glory, glory, glory. Let's get back to the lesson here. And in him, you too are being built together. That's the you all. Being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So we're talking about faithfulness. And we started on this verse already. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Now, if you came over to my house... 
you would say, John, that's a pretty nice house. But you know, I know who built that house. It was Ivan and Bill Umble. And so when I look in my kitchen and I look up, I see two by tens next to each other because the, the, it was just over-engineered. I know the builder of the house. And if you've got salvation, you know the builder of that house. It's a wonderful building. But you know, one day it's just going to burn up. I talked about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was just a model. It was a blueprint, the Bible says. It was a blueprint, and there was Solomon's temple, and Zerubbabel's temple, and Herod's temple, and there's going to be an Ezekiel temple. But the temple that's in heaven, the Bible says there will be no need for the sun because Jesus is the light, and his temple is just going to, Jesus is the temple. He's the builder, and he's the temple. Try to tell that to somebody who doesn't have any Bible under their belt. Moses was faithful, we talked about that, but Christ is faithful, he's faithfuler. We are his house, if indeed we only firmly hold together to our confidence and the hope. Talked about this first. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You're not your own, you're bought with a price. What was my price tag? You know, if this body burned up, it's worth about 87 cents in chemicals because everything else is just water. So if, if, I miss the, if, if the rapture comes behind me, I'm really looking forward to the rapture. And I get cremated, 87 cents worth. The box will be worth more than I am. My body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. That 87 cents, it's precious. To God because I was bought with a price. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to honor God with our bodies. For there is no one, no, I'm on that second verse down below, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, the builder, Jesus Christ. Now, we're supposed to be builders, the Bible says laborers together with Christ. We're supposed to be builders. And you can read that verse and I'll just comment on it. When rapture time comes, we're going to all, if we're saved, appear before the judgment seat, the mercy seat of Christ. And we will be judged, not saved versus lost, but according to what we did for Jesus. Key word for Jesus, because if I did it for the praise of men, the Bible tells us I've already received my reward. If built upon the foundation of Jesus is gold, silver, precious stones, then I'm eligible for one of five different kinds of crowns. But if it's wood, hay, or stubble, it's going to be tried by fire. And just like a person who's escaped his house burned on fire, you get out with, I'll borrow a phrase from King James, the skin of your teeth. We talked about that at Sunday school, to plug that again. The other week, other week we talked about the apple of the eye. There are lots of phrases in English that comes from, that phrases that come from, the King James, the apple of the eye, skin of the teeth. There's several others. I'll bring them up maybe next week if I think about it. Jesus is. He's my veil. He's my rock. He's my bread of life. He's my all in all. 
He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So the Romans chapter 8 concludes with nothing will they be able to separate us from the love which is in Christ Jesus. We're going to have to quit right there. I'm one minute over.